Hey there, folks, and welcome to Bread and Poetry, a podcast about poetry and bread for everyone. I'm your host, Dianelli Antigua, Poet Laureate of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Poet Laureate of your hearts. On this podcast, we talk to the people in our community, the poets and the non-poets alike, about poetry and what it means to them. In the words of Roque Dalton, I believe the world is beautiful and that poetry, like bread, is for everyone. With me today is Fariha Roshin, poet, artist, mental wellness advocate. I'll read her bio first. Fariha Roshin is a multidisciplinary artist born in Ontario, Canada. She was raised in Sydney, Australia, and is based in Los Angeles, California. As a Muslim, queer, Bangladeshi, she is interested in the margins, liminality, otherness, and the mercurial nature of being. Her work has pioneered a refreshing and renewed conversation about wellness, contemporary Islam, and queer identities. Roshin has published works, How to Cure a Ghost, Like a Bird, who is wellness for an examination of wellness and culture and who it leaves behind. Her second book of poetry, Survival Takes a Wild Imagination, came out in October 2023. Welcome, Faria. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I feel good. I had a dentist appointment today and I'm that weird person that enjoys going to the dentist. Mm -hmm. So I feel like extra refreshed for the new year. That's so nice. You're ready. You're ready to go. <laughs> I'm ready to stain my teeth on all of the coffee <laughs> I will have this year. And then you'll clean it again next year. It's, it's a cycle. Right, right, right. Absolutely. Let's break bread. So Fariha, what role do you play in your local community? Hmm. The first thing that comes to mind is truth seeker. Hmm. Truth teller. I don't think I've always been a truth teller, so it feels very distinct to choose to tell the truth. And I feel like in my local community in the last, especially five years, I've committed to this higher version of myself. And that includes both truth seeking and truth telling. I'm curious, how does that connect with some of the work that you do within mental wellness? Mental wellness. I, I've actually never heard it like that before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wellness is holistic. So maybe I should just say wellness in general. You know, it's wellness encompasses so much. Yeah, it really does. And, and for me, I feel like my wellness is actually so much about my somatic life and my somatic memory and my body. And my mind is so, it, it, it's sort of, less focused these days. But my connection to truth telling and wellness has a lot to do with my desire to decolonize. And I understand decolonization as an action that one takes with oneself. And it requires getting very quiet and still in order to be a channel for your ancestors, to be a channel for lost lineages, to be a channel for uh, different worlds. And in order to do that work, you, you have to cultivate a lot of inner silence so you can reflect and you can, you know, essentially receive those downloads. And I think, yeah, the, that to me is like the pursuit of wellness. And it's also the pursuit of truth telling. You have to be so precise when you're telling the truth. And I love that. I love that action. I love that deliberation. It reminds me of something that's close to the divine because it's this want for more and want for better. And, and seeking truth is like constantly being in that discovery and that curiosity and that self-reflection with oneself and society. And who is wellness for, which is, you know, a very big book to undertake. I really precisely looked at society and with this extreme focus, looked at things that I don't think 
maybe a lot of us like on a social level talk about, but a piece of work, I've never encountered anything like this before. And I wanted to write it. I wanted to comprehend these questions about what does it mean to need so much that the wellness world brings and yet the sacrifice that it has been made for us to be here having access to forms of wellness that people where I'm from, which is where a lot of wellness culture comes from, India and the greater South Asian regions, you know, that those people don't, they don't get access to wellness. They don't get care. They don't get, you know, they're in so many cases, they don't even get their fundamental human rights met. So I don't know, it's, it's a struggle and it's a grappling. And I think that's kind of like the essence of truth seeking as well. It's like constantly grappling with what is coming up and, and, and the information that you're finding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think we'll get into this a little bit later when we start talking more about poetry specifically. But I mean, this is a poetry podcast. So I know for you that poetry and wellness are connected. And could you say a little bit about that? Wellness and poetry. Yeah, I mean, I think that poetry is one of the most honest art forms. And there is a thematic here about truth. And I often think about, to go back to what I was saying with decolonization, so much of decolonizing is like moving from the gut, not from the mind. It's understanding intuition. And to me, that's poetry, you know, to be in that rhythm, to be in that sort of, uh, it's just, it's just, it's liberation, you know, to be free with your words, to be free with how you feel, with your vibrations, how you use words to evoke something, memories and lost time and grief and sublime joy, like all of those things, memory, all of those things poetry contains. And so, yeah, I think that the way that we are well is the more that we are honest with ourselves and the more that we are accountable and the more that we are not denying and dismissing. Because that's when I think disease really ruptures, when you're in denial with yourself, when you're not, you know, taking care of yourself, when you're pretending as if you're not in pain, when you're not going to the doctor, when you're not taking the medication that you might need, or, you know, not eating the right foods, not listening to the ways in which your gut reacts. To me, I I have a chronic illness. and, And this is something that I've been experiencing since I was 14. And it's something that I feel has really dictated my relationship to not only the world, my writing, but also, of course, my body. And that's why I think everything's sort of related and everything is connected. And so poetry is wellness and, and, and my body is as significant as the mind. And I'm in this place with myself right now where I'm finally able to trust myself more. And, and the more that I trust myself, the more that I respect myself, I'm honest with myself. It makes me a better person to be around because I can take accountability and I can move with transparency. I mean, that is the pursuit, I think, of both poetry and wellness. So I think they're really interconnected. Yeah, I really appreciated what you said about you know, the root of illness is denial, denial of oneself, denial of pain, whether it's, you know, physical pain, emotional pain. And I also have a chronic illness that I've had since I was a teenager. And a lot of it does stem from denial, from having denied my own experience or experiences, I should say, my own trauma. And then for a period of time, denying what that trauma was doing and how it was being stored in my body. And similarly, poetry was an avenue in which to explore the truth and to find a way out of denial and into the room where I could tell the truth, whether it was telling the truth to myself. And then later on, that became telling the truth about myself to others. 
So having read up a little bit on you before the interview, I I knew that we had a lot of things that we were going to be able to talk about considering how we've come to poetry and, and how we use poetry in our lives, both professionally and and personally. And wellness, I believe, is for everyone. And as I speak about in the intro, so is bread. So this is the most important question of the show, as I like to say. Freya, what is your favorite kind of bread? Um, I am celiac. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, then, there we go. <laughs> so I have a very very contentious relationship to to wheat bread but I do love I mean I love any kind of bread that I can eat in all honesty and that's sort of been my ongoing relationship with bread I've been celiac since I was 10 so I've never really ever developed the muscle considering that do you have maybe a beautiful challenging or powerful memory that includes bread hmm I mean, I always think of the symbology of bread and what bread has meant for humans and our evolution. You know, you, you've got like the biblical manna, you know, manna from heaven, the bread from heaven. One of my childhood best friends who I'm still very close to, manna, would often make a joke about that. And it's like <laughs> seared into my mind. And that's probably my like earliest memory of bread, like bread being mm. a focal point. And then I just think a lot about the way that bread connects communities, you know, the warmth of it. And even just like right now what's happening in Gaza and bakeries are sort of one of the last places that you can get anything of, of one substance, but also, you know, that's like that healing, you know, they don't have running water. They don't, it's, it's, I, I don't even comprehend the living situation in all, in all honesty, but I keep hearing about these stories of like fathers going to the bakery to buy their children bread. And then when they come back, the children are dead because they've been hit by Israeli airstrikes. And so I know how bread is like a tool for liberation in Palestine because, you know, despite being bombed, and I'm and like old school veteran bakers being bombed, assassinated essentially because they're beacons of hope. You know, it's a political issue. Bread is a political issue, and it devastates me that it's still not the fundamental, foundational thing for people to have access to something as simple as bread, as simple as a, a good loaf, a hot loaf, a delicious loaf a nutritious loaf, a loaf that will satiate, a loaf that will deliver. And yeah, it's, it's a metaphor for what we're unwilling to give each other, substance. But substance is the most nutritional and vital thing that we can give. So yeah, I guess those are my, my thoughts about bread. I, I love that you mentioned manna from heaven. And interesting enough that you're a friend of yours was named manna, but I grew up Pentecostal and we talked a lot about the manna from heaven. I love how you're in a way reclaiming that. And in a way, I feel like in this conversation, I'm reclaiming manna for myself as bread being something that's not only, you know, we, it's tangible, but as something that's, that's spiritual as well, but that I define what that spirituality means as opposed to, you know, a man, a preacher telling me what that spirituality should look like or what it should mean. And I think that then connects to community and, you know, you're bringing it to our attention to what is happening in Gaza. And absolutely, like, bakers are beacons of hope. And I too cannot comprehend what the conditions are there and how people are still surviving but they are. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we talk about the poems that you've brought in. So I want to leave it open for us to continue this discussion. But I'm really grateful when I saw your poems come in that that's what we were going to be having a conversation about today, because I think it's so important that we continue to raise awareness around this issue and not let it be that it was some trendy hot topic on 
social media and people posted about it for the first week and then now no one's saying anything. You know, it's something that needs to be a continued conversation. And this has been going on for so long and it didn't just, you know, start in October. It's been so long and this conversation is so necessary as well. I did want to pivot back to poetry and I'm curious what brought you to poetry in the first place. I mean, I was a really voracious reader because I wasn't really allowed out of the house. So I had to spend almost all of my time in either school or in my bedroom. And so I went to the library a lot and I would borrow books and I would read anything. I don't know why, but I just, Mm -hmm. I was really always like a keen reader and I was reading Yeats and I was reading Elizabeth Bishop and I was reading Anne Carson. And I don't think I like necessarily understood like what I was reading or maybe I did, you know, I I was like raised on Maya Angelou and Rumi, obviously big one because of Rumi's devotion to God and being Muslim. I mean, those things were really, really important for me. I, I had a lot of Sufi upbringing and, and teachings. And so I had a lot of access to many different things. And, you know, Kabir and Hafez are other very important poets of my familial upbringing. And then Tagore, Rabindranath Tagore, who is sort of Bengal's preeminent writer, I was really raised on him. And so I always had, I guess, like an access point to poetry. Both of my parents there's like a Bangladeshi tradition or Bangali tradition of reciting poetry is very big. And, mm. and so like, you know, there'll be events and my parents used to do this all of my childhood. They would read poems and sing songs on stages in front of hundreds of people. So I, I think like my recitation and, and my desire for, for that also comes from them. It comes from my own blood. So I feel very lucky to have had a lot of exposure to poetry. But then like my own desire for poetry came through just like reading many different kinds of poems and poets and kind of finding myself through literature and through poetry books that I would find. Mm. Yeah, there is something to be said about having been raised mainly inside. I too did not go outside very much as a young girl. Mm -hmm. My mother actually was a librarian. So even more so I had all these books at my, at my fingertips and I didn't even have to go into a library. She would just bring them home to me. That's amazing. (laughs) So I was very spoiled in that way. And I got to go to the library with her a lot Mm -hmm. and shelf books and listeners. There's a whole interview that I did about this as well. So I won't take up too much time talking about that experience, but there is something to be said about those who have been raised inside and how we gravitate towards books in a way to experience the world without having to step outside of our doors. And sometimes we for certain reasons, can't step outside of our doors. For me, it was was safety reasons. So books were my door in a way. For me too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like when when you're forced inside, you either break or you learn to live with it or you learn to adapt. And I also watched a lot of movies and I think I'm so lucky that I was able to self educate and just gravitate towards art forms that I knew would help me imagine. And I think it is really part of the reason why I've been so ambitious as a writer. It's because from a very young age, I was reading writing that I wanted to emulate and I wanted to be like, and it felt like even if I was my only audience and I, and I think just also growing up kind of partially on the internet, it, I like learned quite young to be like, oh, like if I want to put something that I do online, like people in my community can see it. And like, that's a cool way to connect with people. And, you know, I always kind of engage that way. And I think it just made me willing to put myself out there and attempt to do something because I didn't actually have any other chance to do it otherwise. So I might as well yeah, just do it, do it my way. And I guess that's what I did. Mm. 
Yeah, I'm thinking about the title of your most recent collection, Survival Takes a Wild Imagination, since we were talking about imagination. And one of the epigraphs that opens the book is actually a June Jordan quote, poetry is a political act because it involves telling the truth. And I picked out mentioning this, and it's interesting how the conversation started in that place when I was hoping that we would eventually end up there. But I guess I want to ask specifically about how this quote impacted your book. Well, I'm obsessed with June. I've been obsessed with June for many years. (laughs) And I mean, when you read her, you're just so, I mean, as a poet, especially as a poet that speaks very openly about politics. And I guess I'm also a political essayist to a certain degree as well. I, and I, or want to be, I, I think that June really has inspired me in terms of understanding the scope of my writing and like what is allowed. I think when you see folks like June, folks like James Baldwin intersect so much of their own political ideals. I mean, obviously there's so many Black radical writers that, you know, from everyone from Audre Lorde to Bell Hooks to uh, Angela Davis, you know, there is this like deep knowledge and knowing of how vital like lifeblood being political and, and, and fighting for revolution is. And you see that even in someone like Toni Morrison, who you wouldn't consider necessarily like a political writer, but she's speaking about the Black experience. She's speaking about weren't you weren't allowed to say you weren't Mm. you know you weren't we didn't live in that you know tony didn't grow up i can't even call her tony i have to call her miss morrison but you know like (laughs) you know like it's the the worlds that folks like baldwin grew up in it's an unimaginable for us for me so i see that bravery and i i salute it i feel deeply courageous because of these elders because of people like June, because of that quote. It's a quote I think about all of the time. I'm so lucky that I got to put it in my book. But her words really have lit the way for me in terms of how I think and how I write. Yeah, I'm thinking about those writers that have come before us, especially, you know, writers of color and everything, absolutely everything they did was revolutionary. And they paved the way for future writers of color to do what, you know, we're now able to do. And I'm extremely, extremely grateful for that. So I want to pivot now to the poem that you brought for us. You brought a Rafat Alarir poem to share. Would you like to share anything about the poem itself before you decide to read it? Rafat was a educator, he was a teacher, and he was assassinated by the Israeli state. And I I have been mourning him for the last month because he was also a poet. And Mm -hmm. it's very interesting to me that poets always get murdered in times of genocide. And I think that says how integral poetry is, because it's the language of revolution. It's the language of the future. It's the language of the world that we want to create. And that's why it's so awe-inspiring. And Rafat constantly, he knew that his time was very limited, you know, as most martyrs do. You know that your life is not your own. And in order to speak as bravely as you must, you, you know, your life is not yours. And yeah, I think it's a great, it's a deep tragedy. And I just wanted to say that. So this poem is called I Am You. Two steps. One, two. Look in the mirror. The horror. The horror. The butt of your M16 on my cheekbone. The yellow patch left. The bullet-shaped scar expanding like a swastika 
snaking across my face, the heartache flowing out of my eyes, dripping out of my nostrils, piercing my ears, flooding the place like it did to you 70 years or so ago. I am just you. I am your past haunting, your present and your future. I strive like you did, I fight like you did, I resist like you resisted. And for a moment, I take your tenacity as a model, were you not holding the barrel of the gun between my bleeding eyes? One, two. The very same gun, the very same bullet that had killed your mom and killed your dad is being used against me by you. Mark this bullet and mark in your gun. If you sniff it, it has your and my blood. It has my present and your past. It has my present. It has your future. That's why we are twins. Same life track, same weapon, same suffering, same facial expressions drawn on the face of the killer, same everything. Except that in your case, the victim has evolved backward into a victimizer. I tell you, I am you, except I am not the you of now. I do not hate you. I want to help you stop hating and killing me. I tell you, the noise of your machine gun renders you deaf. The smell of the powder beats that of my blood. The sparks disfigure my facial expressions. Would you stop shooting for a moment? Would you? All you have to do is close your eyes. Seeing these days blinds our hearts. Close your eyes tightly so that you can see in your mind's eye, then look into the mirror. One, two, I am you. I am your past and killing me, you kill you. Thank you so much for, for reading Rafat's poem. So I, I wanted to ask, I think, I mean, this poem is, it's, it's, it's hard to read the poem. It's hard to know that someone like Rafat, someone like everyone that's in Gaza right now, that, that their lives are being threatened and that we've lost so many. And this poem actually came out in 2012 and it's interesting and by interesting that's in quotes it's interesting to note that and not much has changed and if anything you know things are are worse the conditions are worse and it goes back to you know what we were talking about previously that this is an ongoing conversation and a situation that has been going on for far too long and that we need to continue to have this conversation. And it's, again, it's not just something that we can post about once and expect that that's enough and that it goes away or that we've done our part, but we need to continue the conversations. I think that that's definitely something that we're all realizing and, or those of us who care are realizing. And it's as much as this is, so terrifying because assault is the worst that we've seen yet against the Palestinians. And it really does seem like it's all out genocide. And yet, you know, the Palestinian resistance is so profound that they keep going and they keep fighting for liberation. And, and it's, it's astonishing to, to witness. I was particularly drawn to the lines, I do not hate you. I want to help you stop hating and killing me. What were your thoughts about that line? 
I mean, my thoughts are that Palestinians have been depicted as hateful anti-Semites for the whole entirety of Palestinian liberation. They've been portrayed and painted as backwards and savages and, and terrorists and everything that you can, and all of it's racialized. And, you know, what's been huge for me, even though I've been in working within Palestinian liberation for so long, is that what is really wild is to witness sort of this like shift in in how we're viewing what's happening and how the rhetoric has changed with regards to Palestinians and Muslim men and Muslims and, and Arabs. And we've spent like kind of the last 50 years of the American empire at war with the Muslim region and all of it's political. You know, there's there's a reason why the United States is so invested in its, you know, one ally in the Middle East or one it's one real ally in the Middle East and its most significant ally because, you know, Israel is in a lot of ways the mini U.S. And I just think that it's really interesting to see the rhetoric change. And I, I grew up in such a mass mass Islamophobic moment, you know, post 9-11, it was just like accelerated beyond control. And from like 11 to about 25, I was really nervous that people would know that I was Muslim, even though I had in my own world, a very good relationship to Islam and being Muslim. I, I didn't have the stories that we expect Muslim women to have, because it's the stories, those are the stories that we assume anyone has. And I think, I don't think I'm an anomaly, but I do think that my stories, one that I felt was very important to talk about, especially because in my life, I experienced a lot of trauma, but none of it was religious. And I just think that that was never a depiction that was even allowed or fathomed, you know, when I was growing up. And all of a sudden, now we're actually having to confront the humanity of Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims. And we're realizing, oh, they're not all, you know, backward savages, that they actually are caring and they love their neighbors and they love their people and they want liberation. And I didn't expect for that to change so, I mean, it hasn't happened that fast, but to change so fast, so quickly. Whenever I talk to anyone who's been organizing for a long time around Palestine, the one thing that they always say is that, like, what has happened in the last three months has taken, like, 20 years of organizing work. And so a lot of it is really because of Black liberation. And I think what happened in 2020 and the uprisings and, and this, like, fast mobilization of words like abolition and, and theories like abolition. And like we were talking about mass incarceration and, and prison industrial complex and, and talking about white supremacy even, you know, and like what is white supremacy? All of a sudden we're talking about it en masse. And I think that it's the groundwork of BLM and just really black activists from the 60s onwards who have helped this like rapid fire shift in society. I mean, it hasn't taken, it's not been rapid, but you know, it's happening so fast when it's happening. And that's, that's cool. And that gives me a lot of hope. Going back to what you were talking about, how truth seeking requires silence. And 2020 was a year of great silence. And we were so removed from the world, but at the same time, so connected. And it was a time where a lot of things stopped. And I feel like that's when a lot of these conversations were, at least I was, I was hearing more chatter about it. I was hearing more of these types of conversations from friends and from family, you know, throughout the pandemic, a, a group of us family members had a a book club and we we read books about white supremacy and and it was a time of 
of great learning and great conversation for, for all of us. And I think that we did need that moment of silence in order for us to get to this point where, you know, like you mentioned, things have progressed much faster than thought, than anticipated, which again, only helps the cause. But I also wanted to touch on what you were talking about as far as humanity. And there's a line here in the poem where Rafat says, that's why we are twins. Same life track, same weapon, same suffering, same facial expression drawn on the face of the killer. Same everything, except that in your case, the victim has evolved backward into a victimizer. I tell you, I am you. And I was so fascinated by this idea of being twins. But when I, I look at someone, I'm just seeing a mirror. You know, I am, I am their twin. We are humans. And in that humanity, we are the same. And I just loved the way that he decided to describe it in that way. And I was wondering about the duality of humanity and how we are capable of so much love and at the same time capable of so much hate too. And that was just something that I think sometimes I forget that within me lies both of those things, but the difference between me and someone else is what I decide to do with that. I think that's what's so profound about what Rafat is saying and what I was kind of saying earlier, but I kind of changed my, my gears of what I was saying. Like I, what I've been really moved by is how most Palestinians I know, most Palestinians I see are fervently respectful and protective of their Jewish siblings. And that is something that I think, therefore, they can see the humanity. They can see the reflection. They can see the mirror. And they have someone like Rafat is humble enough to see himself in that reflection. And I think that a lot of work that we don't want to do with healing is like seeing that you know, seeing the monster, seeing the shadow, seeing the darkness, seeing the capacity to do something else, to be a different person, and to not do those things, to not choose that path, to not be that person, is so significant when you've only ever experienced oppression. It's truly deeply, like, I mean, nirvana state evolutionary, you know, it's like, whoa, like to achieve that level of love, you know, and I saw that in like the last interview that Rafat does before he's murdered, before he's assassinated, he's crying, he's weeping because he knows any moment he's going to die. He's like, well, what do we do? You know, do we leave? Do we leave our land? Do we leave our people? Do we leave our homes? Like, is this what we want for? No, we, we want to be here. We, we must fight. We must die fighting. And you can also die fighting actually, when you die fighting, it becomes divine, I think, because you're, it's this exercise, it's a spiritual exercise to just surrender, and to surrender to your own death, and to fight anyway, it takes such love of the people that you're fighting for, and such love of people I think that's the only way that you can be a martyr. You know, you love your people so much that you're willing to sacrifice yourself for it. It's, it's truly remarkable. So I see that line and, and really this poem as an indictment of the depths of love in Rafat's heart and the astonishing quality of that, of like how much a pearl is created through just extraordinarily extreme unlivable conditions and yet i think to me this has been the most moving thing witnessing of course palestinians they're human they you know they're not 
they are just people and 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 I I don't want to remove that humanity from them but witnessing them has moved me beyond comprehension because it's seeing people that choose love every day with their neighbors with their peers with their brethren there is such a depth of love and protection that's why Men are out there in the rubble trying to find babies that are not theirs and adopting children that have lost their parents because it's rooted in a deep love of your people. Mm, yeah. I wanted to bring Rafat's voice into the room and he spoke to CNN and described some of the emotional and physical trauma sustained by the Palestinian children and families under the bombardment. And he says, the way things usually start is complete fear in the first couple of days. This turns into numbness later on, complete indifference, complete submission. If you want to pray, you cut it short because there's bombing around. If you want to eat, you stop eating because there's bombing around. You want to hug your kids like you usually do or tell them stories or pat them on the head but you don't want to do it because you don't want to feel or make them feel that this is like a farewell hug. We count the years by how many wars our kids survive. And that just was so, I mean, hard hearing in, in his voice, especially knowing that, you know, two months later he would be killed. And thinking of what you were saying before about the persistence of fighting and how he says we count the years by how many wars our kids survive. I was just so moved by that sentence. Yeah. How are you doing over there? I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is so tough to to talk about and Again, I'm so grateful that we are having this conversation and I'm grateful for those who are going to listen and partake with us and break bread as it were. So I wanted to pivot now to one of your own poems. Is there anything you would like to share with us before you read the poem? It's the first poem that I've been reading at every reading that I've been doing. And I think that it really anchors the entire book. So yeah, I'll start with, with that. It's called An Ode to Baby Fa. After Lucille Clifton. One, I pick myself up off the floor. I take myself out of the bathtub and tell myself, you don't want to die. You want to live. I wish I had a mother to do that for me. I wish I had a somebody who could let me rest my head on their lap and say, Shh, honey, you've had to work too hard. It's okay. Rest here. I love you, honey. My default is to worry about whether or not I'm easy to love. Too many people have told me otherwise. But I know I am. I know I am. So I get up. I get up and I just get the fucking fuck up and I find some peace. I ask myself, Fa, what do you want? And baby Fa says what she wants. And then I look at her and I say, fuck, I love you so much. How did you survive? And in that moment, I can either break down on my knees and cry for the life I've had, or I can just say, Baby Fa, you are a goddamn miracle. I see you. I see you and I love you so much. Thank you for surviving, Baby Fa. You've done such a great job. I wouldn't change anything in the world. You're perfect. I'm so lucky I get to be you. So it begins. The air is slight and powerful. The wind hits the tranquil place within me. It's strong and I'm no longer absent. Now 
and present with myself. It's holy and mysterious, and I know that it's alive and I'm patient. I know like the sun, like rain, it spools and I'm pulsing. It's a leaf like the green of pistachio, green like basil. The earth is green and so are the trees and in that aliveness of it all, rapturous, rapturous, I am still on this earth, I am still. Three, who sees you when you come into yourself? When you stretch and make space for all the longing, for all the ugly, who protects you then? Four, the hurricane speaks. The lark strings through the sprouting trees and I'm abandoned. But the earth is here and I am still, still like the quiet spurring of a cicada. They reach their tenuous sounds while never moving, and yet, and yet, resounding. Five, today is a rainy day. It's a day that has character, a sort of ruinous character moving. I anger in silence, alone, through devastation, while seeking love like a beggar. I am hungry for it, mother. I am hungry for a love that will feed the void you left inside of me. The void ever present, a pulse running through me. There is a tempest within me, a longing, an ache, a hunger, unpronounced. Six. I've been waiting, hiding in prayer, in the motions, pruning in the gardens of hope edging closer to an understanding of self. There are so many things that make a self, so many considerations and configurations of being, but I've been trapped in darkness for so long. This memory is ever present, ever possible. Trauma is always on the horizon. It takes rewiring to believe in more. It takes courage to hope. Seven, tragedy needs examination. No one can ever save you from the turmoil of grief. You have to choose wisely in whom to trust when you're on the floor squirming at injustice. But pain also has its resolution. This too shall pass. So I celebrate the small grand act of making something big out of a life that could have turned a tragedy. No one's sympathy will ever be a salve for the permanent feeling of loss, whose words will help overcome generations of trauma. You can do it, Fa. You can remember yourself. Nine. This life will pass you by in a blip. No cause or concern, then you're gone. Pain can be hypnotic. Find joy in the dance. Choose yourself, especially when no one else will. Find magnificence in solitude. Find God again and again. 10, but mostly find celebration. For every day that has tried to kill you and failed. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was lovely to hear it in your voice too. There's something so powerful about hearing a poet read their work in their voice and it's it was lovely to both read it on the page but then to be able to hear it it's something completely different and i feel so so honored to be able to hear it today i love the fact that this is after a lucille clifton poem won't you celebrate with me 
which some listeners may know, it's one of my favorite poems. And the last line of the poem says, come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. I'm curious about your relationship to this poem. I mean, I really relate to it. You know, I'm a child of a lot of trauma that's experienced a lot of pain and suffering in my life. And, you know, in every way, shape or form, I've not had like an ordinary life. And, you know, family dynamics really replicate in romantic dynamics and friendship dynamics. And it's, it's weird. It's weird to sort of experience a lot of external instability and have to focus on my internal stability because I can't really depend on anything else. And mm-hmm. so I think that that's kind of also what the poem is about. It's about survival, but it's kind of the pride in survival. Like it sucks that you have to survive sometimes, but how extraordinary that you can, you know, that you can against all odds. Again, what we're seeing in Gaza, you know, just really like deep, instinctual survival that's truly amazing and i and i think this poem and also just lucille clifton in general and but really this poem it's it's applauding and giving voice to i think those of us who do feel quite unseen in our survival and you know not everybody's gonna congratulate you or be like whoa you did that and Sometimes you have to write a poem to yourself to really be that reflection because I long for that recognition and I long for that reflection. And I think that's why poems are so significant because they give you that reflection. And yeah, I really saw myself in this poem. Mm. And I, I adore that it's an ode to Baby Fa and an ode to your inner child, your past self. And I love that you're celebrating her survival and also telling her how much you love her. And there's something to be said about like reparenting yourself and just hearing those words. I love you so much. And I've found a lot of healing and being able to say that to myself, to my inner child. And I'm curious about how that's helped you and what healing you've found in in that way. Yeah. I mean, when I first started trauma therapy, like five years ago, I couldn't have ever comprehended that I'd be able to like communicate with my inner child. It's felt so foreign and strange to me. And, and then like the more I my my therapist would give me exercises to speak to my inner child. And the more I did it, the more this gentleness emerged and this deep, compassionate voice emerged. And I never used to write like this because I never had love for myself. So I didn't have that gentleness and that softness and that earnestness towards myself, maybe to other people. And so it was really healing and it's been really healing to be able to communicate to this part of myself and to ensure her that she's safe and that she's she's going to be okay and that she's you know that I am her protector and that I don't have to wait for a protector and that you know I don't have to constantly be looking for protection elsewhere that I can really lean on myself and that's been a really key part of my own healing just to acknowledge that it is sad that I can't rely on more people, that I don't have a, you know, a family where I can lean on people or that I can call them up and, and ask for things or call them up and just talk. And it's not like traumatic or triggering or uncomfortable. And I think that baby Fa is really sort of also a version. And really, my therapist is great. And she's really helped me communicate with like many different versions of myself. And you know, this current self is always like, you know, like an elder. And it's cool to have myself as an elder. And to go back to the, you know, many different versions and just bring ease to whatever is is uncomfortable, you know, whether it's like feeling self conscious, and it's like a feeling I had when I was 11. And it's like 11 year old me is emerging. 
how do I communicate with that version of myself and show them love and compassion, what I so deeply crave. And so it's been really nice to explore it through poetry. And that's, I think, really why I begin with this poem too. It feels like such a significant step that I'm here. Mm, That's so beautiful. Yeah, bringing ease and comfort to that 11-year-old self who's self-conscious. And I think that we can all relate to, you know, an 11-year-old past version of ourselves who is growing into a new body or just growing up and how that feeling is. We've all experienced that self-conscious feeling and how you can go back almost as if you were traveling back in time and provide that comfort and that ease. And it's such a beautiful and tender moment that it's hard to describe to folks who haven't experienced that type of self-talk or or therapy before. And it can seem kind of a little like gimmicky or like a little empty in some ways, or as some might say, a little granola crunchy, but it works. It really does. And I, I believe you when you say that it works for you. And I also am a believer of this because it's worked for me as well. And speaking to my inner child in that compassionate way allows me to then speak to others in that compassionate way, to speak to their inner children or to speak to their present selves in that way. And like, what a gift that is to be able to bring ease and comfort to someone else's inner child as well. Yeah, it's such a gift. Is there anything else you want to mention about this poem before we offer our writers a writing prompt? I I mean, it's everything that we were saying, you know, what, what you just said, it's very much, I'm so lucky that I get to write to myself and in that clarity be that reflection to someone else like that is extraordinary that feeling is there's really nothing quite like it this book has healed me putting it out has kind of healed me meeting audiences heals me meeting people that have been reading my work always heals me because it's the connection I so deeply crave I love people who read me and who love reading me it's it's such an honor to be read it's such an honor to share my thoughts it's such an honor to be real like just to be myself all of the time and to have people like accept me you know I, I find it quite hard to be human out in the real world or like the world and Oftentimes, like people that, you know, have taken my classes or who like have like shown up in community with me that I really feel like a true, true, I guess, reflection with. And it's just, it's, it's so, I'm so grateful. And this poem, I think is, is really that too. It's, it's showing the possibility of speaking to yourself. Like I used to hate myself until like very recently, until like Mm -hmm. maybe two years ago. You know, I'm a child sexual abuse survivor. I don't think that that really is something that, you know, people really comprehend, like how much you are taught to hate yourself when you have experienced that level of trauma. And a lot of it happens because of grooming and what you're being told about yourself is exactly why you're being abused. So it's it's really cyclical. And I had to work through so much deprogramming to love myself and it's possible. And I think that this book is a testament to that, the possibility of survival and the possibility more than anything of healing. Right. And I, again, like going back to the title of your book, survival takes a wild imagination. And in a way it really does. Because those who have done harm to us never expected us to really survive it or to be able to be healed. And what does it mean that we have learned how to heal ourselves? And then how does that render them in a way powerless? Right? And that's such a beautiful thing. And also such an empowering thing for for survivors themselves that yes, 
this abuse, this trauma has happened, but they don't need those abusers, those people who have done us harm, don't need to dictate who we are. We do. Uh, and I'm grateful that this book has brought you so much healing and that it's brought you to all the right rooms with all the right people who have been really touched by your work and how it's affected them in such a positive way and, and brought them joy and celebration and being able to celebrate themselves. Mm. And I want to just circle back to the idea of, of twins that Rafat brings up and how these people who are reading your work and coming up to you are in a way like a twin. And they, again, are just another part of humanity. We are all connected and they're just another part of this greater picture of what we call humanity because within them lies what lies within us. And yeah, what what a powerful way to to connect through poetry. Like I I don't know any other fucking way that works this well. You know, like other people have the ways in which they connect to others and it works well and I'm so grateful that they have that. But there's been nothing in my life quite like poetry that has done this that has been able to connect me in such a genuine way to other humans. It has been the gift of my life. And I feel like this conversation has been quite a gift. And I hope that listeners have been taking this journey with us. And now I want to pivot to the gluten-free segment. And I feel like you'll be able to partake in this for sure. <laughs> the gluten-free segment or glutton-free, as I like to call it, <laughs> it's where we leave you with a little morsel you don't need to feel guilty about indulging in. It's usually a writing prompt related to the poems we've heard or topics we've discussed. So Freya, what do we have for the people today? And we can think about this together. I mean, recently I've been asking a lot of people what they envision liberation to look like and what they envision a free Palestine to look like. And I mean, maybe a good question or a good prompt would be is like, what is your truth? What is truth to you? Yeah. And maybe even to take it a step further, I was thinking about like, what truth would you tell a younger self, a younger version, mm. you know, mm -hmm. what truth would I tell a baby Dianelli? What truth would I tell her? Yeah, I, I like, I like this, this prompt. It's <laughs> <laughs> useful. I know. <laughs> I have therapy on Thursdays, therapeutic Thursdays, mm. as I like to call them. Nice. And this is definitely something that I think would be really helpful to, to explore uh, not just myself, but I hope that listeners will find the value that that this prompt can bring. So if you write a poem using the prompts we've suggested, we ask that you submit it for consideration to be published in a future anthology that will showcase work inspired by this podcast. Please submit your poems to pplpsubmissions at gmail.com or submit using the form linked in the show notes and our Instagram bio at Bread and Poetry Podcast. You can find all of this in the show notes. As a reference, you can find a link in the show notes as well and on Instagram to an archive of the writing prompts on each episode so far. Fariha, anything you'd like to promote? Any highlights? Anything at all? I would love for folks to read my work on Substack. I have yes. my own newsletter called How to Cure a Ghost, which is named after my first poetry collection. And it's at fariharoshin.substack.com. And I'm also on Instagram at fariharoshin. And I would love it if folks bought my book, Survival Takes a Wild Imagination. This is probably my favorite book I've ever written. It feels the most honest depiction of me. And Who's Wellness For is also something that I would love people to deep dive into a little bit more. 
because I think everything that's happening in this world right now is very much signaling a lot of the work and a lot of the research I did in Who Is Wellness For. So yeah, and and really like any book that I've written, like go go and find them and, and read them and and I would love your support. Yes, absolutely. And you have mine, you have, I'm sure you'll have the listener support and all of the social media and links are in our show notes as well. So they're right there for you and you can click on them. Thank you for you for this wonderful conversation about poetry and humanity and healing. It's It's been so, so lovely. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Bread and Poetry Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Bread and Poetry Podcast and Twitter at Bread Poetry Pod. Please rate, review, and subscribe to keep this thing kicking. This podcast is sponsored in part by the Portsmouth Poet Laureate Program. You can follow them on Instagram at PPLPNH. Please consider making a donation at pplp.org slash donate to help fund this nonprofit and its mission to further build community through poetry. This podcast is also sponsored in part by the Academy of American Poets with funds from the Mellon Foundation. Bread and Poetry is produced by Kula Productions. Cover art is by Najee Brown and theme music is by Studias. Stay tuned for more episodes of Bread and Poetry coming at ya because truly, who doesn't love bread and who doesn't love poetry? Until then, my dear ones. There we go. Yay. We did it. Yay. Yay. (laughs) That was so, so good. I really appreciate you deep diving with me. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And just going there, which is the only way. I agree. And that's really what I want to talk about on this podcast. Mm. And bread is just a way in which to enter those conversations. Mm -hmm. As I found that something that is so universal like bread. Yeah. Everyone has something to say about it. Even someone who's celiac. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Totally. I had a lot to say about bread.